I apologize if it's a little cold in here. Some of you might be like, it's not cold at all. Uh, the uh, heater came on earlier today when we first got in here, but it stopped working, and so Diane is, is on the, the case right now, working through that. Hopefully we get it fixed. All right, let me, let me pray one more time before we open God's word and ask for him to help us. Father God, you are the greatest reality in the universe. There's nothing more beautiful, nothing more splendid, nothing more deserving of our complete and total adoration than you. And what we need more than anything else right now, every human being in this room needs to know your greatness, your glory, your beauty, and to embrace it with delight. And what that's going to take because of distractions, what that's going to take because of our own sin, our own inability to to enjoy who you are, is going to take a work of your hand in our hearts. And so my prayer right now for me and for my friends here today is that you would do that, that you would grant us eyes to see and soft hearts to receive the great truths that we're looking at in the book of Ruth today, Father. For the sake of your name, amen. So two weeks ago, we passed through the center of the book of Ruth, and we did that both uh, literally. We went from chapter 2 to chapter 3, and there's four chapters in this book, and we did that figuratively. In the story of Ruth, central to the story is this concept of redeemer. And so we had last two weeks ago, actually, uh, this proposal from Ruth for marriage, marriage with Boaz. She asked Boaz to marry her. In this context, the request was a request of redemption. She needs Boaz to redeem her, and redemption is this, this part of Hebrew law that allows him to marry her and redeem her from her poverty, from the loss of her husband, from all that she suffered, but we also saw that Boaz, two weeks ago, isn't just a historical character. He's not just somebody in history. He is a type and a shadow. He is a preview of someone to come. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing in the redemption of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, is a picture of the redemption that is found only in Christ Jesus. And... Um, we saw two weeks ago how that redemption is not just the center of the book of Ruth, how it's not just the center of Scripture, but it's really the center of all reality. That redemptive act by God, pursuing his bride by coming and dying on a cross, taking on the punishment that they deserve, that's the center of everything. The gospel is what we call it. But although we, we, we got into the section of the book of Ruth where Boaz is introduced and seen as a redeemer. He has yet in this story to actually redeem anyone. In fact, when we, uh, when we looked at this uh, last week, I could hear a collective gasp from the people who know the story because we stopped halfway through Boaz's response. And we, we stopped before we're about to see that it isn't so cut and dry. It's not as easy as him just agreeing to marriage. There is an obstacle in the way of Boaz marrying Ruth. And that's what our time today is about. So if you would turn with me to Ruth chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 10. Some of this we read last week or two weeks ago. I'm going to keep on messing that up. <laughs> um, I hope you guys are safe after the snowstorm uh, and recovering well. 
So we're going to read from chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to the end of chapter 3. It begins like this. And he said, this is Boaz, to Ruth, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, this is her request for marriage, request for redemption, this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she, Ruth, laid at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring out, bring the garment you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, her mother-in-law said to her, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz, in his response to Ruth's proposal for marriage, immediately blesses her. And he tells her not to fear. He's going to do all that she's asked for. Um, namely, he's going to redeem her. He's going to, to ransom her from the poverty she's experienced in losing her husband. Yet it's not that simple because there is another redeemer. There's another one who is nearer than, than he is to Naomi, her mother-in-law. In other words, the right of redemption, which we looked at uh, quite a bit two weeks ago, um, is, uh, belongs to the relatives who are closest to the people who are affected, the closest to the ones who have lost their husband or their property. So there's another man in this family that is closer to Ruth closer to Naomi and closer to Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech, than Boaz is. And so this means that someone has the right of redemption before Boaz. And this is a problem because a lot of you probably were hoping that Boaz and Ruth would get together. I mean, that's the way the story's been going. And now this is the point in their story where their love for each other, that's the heater, praise Jesus. <laughs> Their love for each other um, has come into jeopardy. Um, and Boaz promises that she will get redemption no matter what, but he's going to follow the law to the seat. Yeah, that's working really well. Um, and he's going to find out first. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. He's going to find out first if this man will redeem her or not. No matter what he says, he promises that she will be redeemed. He's promising that to her. He even swears to her, as the Lord lives. And if you read any Old Testament, especially during this era, you know what he's doing. This is a profound statement of oath. It's promising her that the redemption that she seeks is as certain as God's existence. 
Because God lives, you will be redeemed, Ruth. I promise you. And then he tells her not to go back home yet. It's in the middle of the night. It's dangerous. Rather lay at my feet and then leave early in the morning. And so when they do wake up, Boaz doesn't want any scandal. He doesn't want any, any controversy at all. He is a, a worthy man, as the text said earlier. And so he has her leave before daybreak. But before she goes, he gives her six measures of barley to take home to Naomi. He doesn't want her, Ruth later says, to return empty-handed. Now, we know that this was Naomi's idea in the first place for, for Ruth to go, and, and he want, she, she wanted her to seek rest with a husband, with Boaz. It was her idea for Ruth to propose redemption. And so Boaz is sending Ruth back with these six measures of barley, and in a way is kind of guaranteeing to Naomi, I'm going to make this right. I know you've lost a lot. I want you to know I'm invested in this. I'm going to make this right. I'm going to make good on this request of redemption through me or through someone else. It's going to happen. He will see it through, which is why Naomi tells Ruth at the end of this chapter, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest. He will settle the matter today. And this is explicitly what we see in the next passage. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, presumably the same morning, and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man said to him, I will redeem it. All right, so that isn't good if you're hoping for Ruth and Boaz to get married. This man has just said that he will redeem Naomi's property, which, as we talked about last week, comes hand in hand with Ruth's marriage. So he tells this, uh, this is how the transaction looks. He goes to the the gate. In, In ancient times, this is where you would have transactions and and deals being made. And he he sees the other redeemer. He tells the other redeemer to sit down. We're going to have a talk. And then he gathers the 10 elders of the city and has them come here. In other words, what he wants to have happen here is, is for there to be a historical record, a witness of this. He doesn't want anyone to come later on and overturn this. He doesn't want anyone to come later on and say, that's not legitimate. That didn't really happen. So he has these witnesses here so that it can't be overruled. And then he explains the situation to this other redeemer. He says that Naomi, who the whole town knew of and knew her situation, she came back from Moab without her husband, without her two sons. She has no one but Ruth. Naomi's looking to sell 
her property. She's looking to redeem her property. In other words, sell the property which was tied up with the redemption of Ruth in order for uh, her, her, her to be redeemed, her property to be redeemed. Um, and this is everything that belonged to her husband Elimelech, everything that belonged to her sons, Malon and Kilion. So if the Redeemer buys it from Naomi, what happens here in Hebrew law is that she will receive money from it and the land is maintained for years and Naomi later on has a chance to get it back. That's what the right of redemption means. The possibility that Naomi could get the land back. Um, And so Boaz tells this man, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. Do this for your kinsman, your relative, to which the other man says, I will redeem it, which may have been, I mean, it may have been a surprise for you if you haven't read the story of Ruth before, um, because that's not where we thought it was going. I mean, I'm personally rooting for Ruth to marry Boaz. That's kind of the love story nature of this, of the, the, the narrative that we've been seeing. And uh, he's protected her for this entire time. He's provided for her this entire time. He loves her and cares for her deeply. It should be him. But this man says, I will redeem it. To which Boaz responds with a very heavy caveat that will increase the cost of redemption for this man extraordinarily. So look at verse five and six in chapter four. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the caveat that Boaz throws on the redemption of the property is that when you redeem the property, you get Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. And the law of redemption when it came to Ruth the Moabite was that in order, so Ruth had been with Malon, her previous husband, for 10 years. They had no children. Naomi and Ruth have no heirs at all. When they die, their family dies. And the right of redemption for Ruth is that they would perpetuate the name of their dead through this person who would redeem them. In other words, the obligation for this redeemer is for him to marry Ruth, have a child with her who will take the place of the deceased husband, Malon, and take care of all the property, all that he had before. And we see here that this is, for this redeemer, simply a cost too high. And so he says... Uh, I'm not going to redeem her. I can't redeem her, lest I impair my own inheritance. And we're not really told what he means by this, but it, it is fair to assume that whatever he means, he's saying that the value of the land and the value of what I could yield from the land isn't great enough to cover the impair that I would receive, the, the the, the lack of value, that what would be taken from me in me marrying Ruth and giving her an heir. In, in his mind, it's more costly for him to redeem Ruth and provide for an heir than for him to not and forego buying the land. And so he forgoes redeeming Ruth, gives the right to Boaz, and then we come to verse 7. And I'm going to read through verse 10, and then we'll talk about what we've read. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So when this redeemer gives up his right of of redemption, he confirms the transaction, which according to this ancient time and this time in Israel, even even it had stopped by the time that the author had written this this account because he says, hey, they don't do this anymore, but by the way, they used to take off their sandals when they signed the dotted line. And so he explains this. He says, he took off his sandal before the witnesses and he gives Boaz his right of redemption. It's yours. Buy it for yourself, Boaz. I forego buying Ruth. I forego buying the property of Naomi and redeeming them from where they're at. And so at this point in verse eight, this is the last time we hear about this other redemption, redeemer in all of scripture. He's gone. We never hear about this man again. And Boaz immediately turns to the witnesses, the elders who are there, and he deals directly with them. And he says, you are witnesses this day of what happened. I want you to see what happened today. I don't want anyone to question what happened today with Ruth in this redemption. And he begins to initiate the process of redemption. He finally accomplishes what he swore to Ruth the night before. And now she will belong to him as his wife, which is what we've been waiting three chapters for to happen. And so they end up together. That's awesome. Yay. But this is not the end of the story. There's actually a lot more story to be told. Um, There's a lot to cover. And what I want to do here is I really want to pause today And I want to look at three specific things that we've read in this passage today about the act of redemption. These are three things about the act of redemption in the book of Ruth that are critical to see. And if we don't see them, if we don't see these three things, we miss what redemption means. Not just in the book of Ruth, but like I said two weeks ago, The book of Ruth is a signpost pointing to a redemptive act that happens later in human history, the redemption that is through Jesus Christ. And so we cannot afford to miss these three things. These three three things are pivotal pivotal for us to see. (laughs) So here they are. I'm going to read them, then we'll go through each of them. The first one is the pursuit. We're going to see the pursuit. The second is we're going to see the obstacle. The obstacle And the third one is the prize. So pursuit, obstacle, prize. Start with number one, the pursuit. Look at what Boaz must do here. Naomi tells Ruth that this man, Boaz, will not rest until he settles the matter today. He won't rest, she says. He's not going to rest. 
And it's an interesting choice of words for Naomi because in chapter 3, verse 1, she tells Ruth that she is seeking, by asking her to propose marriage to Boaz, Ruth's rest. I'm seeking your rest. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Then Naomi, her her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And this verse in chapter 3 is really repeating something that Naomi's already said to Ruth in chapter 1. If you look at verse 9 in chapter 1, if you remember that, she was trying to convince Ruth to stay in Moab. She had lost, Naomi had lost her husband. Naomi had lost her two sons, one of which was married to Ruth. And she was telling Ruth, you need to stay in Moab and you need to seek the rest of a husband in the land of Moab and live in his house. You need to seek rest, Ruth. And in chapter three, Naomi is saying the exact same thing, except now she has Boaz in focus. Boaz is the one that she wants Ruth to seek rest with. And Naomi is saying about Boaz when she says he will not rest until he settles the matter. She is saying about him that he will not rest until he has secured your rest, Ruth. He will not rest until he has secured your rest. And this is exactly what happened. Immediately, Boaz goes out to the gate. He engages this other redeemer. And this is his pursuit of Ruth. This is his pursuit of her rest. He is relentless in securing the redemption of Ruth, even if it may cost him in the long run. He doesn't care about those things. He loves her and he refuses to give her up and give up his pursuit of her redemption. He refuses to rest until the matter is settled. And this isn't too dissimilar from someone else in Scripture who refuses to rest until the matter is settled. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And it says, going a little farther, he fell on his face. This is Jesus. And prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from thee. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, Jesus went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. They're for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. 
see my betrayer is at hand. It says here three times, Jesus finds his disciples failing to stay awake. They're resting. They're resting. And three times Jesus refuses to rest until he is resolved to secure their eternal rest. That's what the cup means. It is a refusal to rest until redemption is guaranteed. Letting the cup pass from Jesus is rest for him. And he refuses to do it. Instead, he says to his father, your will be done. I can't rest, father, until I secure the rest of those that I love. I can't do it. That's Jesus. And this cup is the cost of redemption. It is in this cup is the, the justice, the, the just wrath of God. That's what the cross represents, the cup. And it is a refusal to rest until the redemption is guaranteed. Letting the cup, well, I already said that, but letting the cup pass from him is a refusal to rest. It is the only way he must take the cup in order for this to happen. And so Naomi says of Boaz, what she says of Boaz is true of Jesus. He refuses to rest until the matter is settled, and he settles it fully on the cross, which brings us to number two, the obstacle. That was number one. Jesus refuses to rest in his pursuit of us. Number two is this, the obstacle. So what is the obstacle in our story? What is the obstacle? The obstacle is the other redeemer. The obstacle is the, the, this other man who is in the way of Boaz redeeming Ruth. And when the author first introduces this man, it's interesting how the ESV translates it. The ESV says friend, refers to him as friend. Um, verse one says, turn aside friend and sit down here. Now, this translation could be much more accurate, I would argue. Because friend, I think, is the ESV's way of being a little bit more generous than the original author. And then Boaz actually was in this interaction. The actual Hebrew phrase that Boaz uses here is so-and-so. Such and such. It's a collection of syllables you would use in the Hebrew language when you don't want to name something. When you're like, blah, blah. We don't need to know his name. The author's not concerned about his name. The author could have done research and figured out who this other guy was. The author doesn't know his name. Boaz isn't concerned about saying his name in the interaction. And the reason why we don't need to know his name is because he doesn't redeem Ruth. He doesn't. He may be a redeemer in title. He may be a redeemer because he's genetically closer to her, like biologically closer to Naomi, but he's not Ruth's redeemer. In fact, he is actually a nobody in this story. Even Orpah is named in the story, Ruth's sister-in-law. He is nobody in this story. He will pass through scripture in the course of eight verses with zero backstory, with zero expansion. We have no clue who this person is because he didn't choose to redeem Ruth. Instead, Boaz redeems Ruth. She becomes his bride and her great-grandson is David, the king of Israel. And that's why the author wrote this book, because Ruth is connected to David. And Boaz is in this book because Boaz redeemed Ruth. And connected to David, 
generations down the road, because of what happens here in this redemption, is another king, infinitely greater than David. And his name is Jesus Christ, often called the son of David because he comes from David's line. So in, in the Messiah's genealogy, and we see two of them uh, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels, in the Messiah's genealogy, Ruth and Boaz appear. They appear in the genealogy of the Savior of the world. They're both remembered and honored in the genealogy of the Messiah. Look at Matthew 1, verses 5 and 6. It, this is in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. The Messiah's genealogy. And we see Boaz, but guess who we don't see? So-and-so. We don't see him anywhere here. The other redeemer, the one who turned away from redeeming Ruth because it would impair his inheritance, we don't see him. And so what does it mean to, why, why did he do this? What, what, what was the deal? Why was he an obstacle in this story? What does it mean to impair inheritance? We don't know what, what the actual language is saying there when he says it would impair my inheritance. There's a lot of questions about that. It could be that it would compromise his own children's ability to get his, his existing children's ability to get his inheritance. It could be that it was splitting the inheritance between them and whoever Ruth would have as a son. It could simply be because Ruth was a Moabite and he didn't want to marry a Moabite. Even though Ruth had abandoned her gods and had embraced the God of Israel, Yahweh, even though she had left her country and she was aligning herself with the people of God, Apparently that wasn't enough for this redeemer and he refused to redeem her. Whatever his intention at the end of the day, he didn't think that sacrificially caring for the needs of Ruth and Naomi was worth the cost that he'd have to pay. That's the bottom line. And when I reflected on this, I was very convicted very convicted, and I'm going to invite you for a second just to step into my convictedness and maybe share in it if you feel necessary. Think about what's happening here. Naomi and Ruth need a redeemer for their family to survive. They have no redeemer. Their family is gone when they die. They need a redeemer. This man is approached. He is the rightful redeemer. He should redeem them even just to show grace and love to Naomi and to Ruth. This is his job. He is a fellow kinsman. He should redeem them. However, he values his own possessions and whatever inheritance his family will have in the future more than sacrificially loving people who need him in the moment. That's his priority. So do you see the difference between Boaz and him? Boaz has already sacrificed a lot for Ruth and Naomi in the first three chapters, tons, yet he still desires to give up more. He doesn't even mention here any kind of impairing of his own inheritance. That's not even on his mind. He simply trusts that in this sacrificial act of love for Ruth and for Naomi, God will provide for him. And what this means is that the other man's right of redemption and him not exercising it here like Boaz is doing, isn't just making him look selfish. 
It doesn't just make him look negligent or even ignorant. That's not what it does here. It makes him an obstacle. He is an obstacle in this story to Ruth's redemption. Boaz is, a, is an instrument of God's redemption in this story. So-and-so, this other man, is an obstacle to God's redemption. He's so caught up in his own inheritance, so caught up in his own possessions, he is willing to sacrifice the family name of Ruth and Naomi in order to ensure that his immediate family has all of their earthly possessions in order. That's what's going on here. To him, that is more important. And so the scary question I asked myself was this. As a Christian who knows the gospel of Jesus Christ, who's encountered the love of God in Jesus and lives around people who do not know that and desperately need to, am I an instrument of God's redemption or am I an obstacle of God's redemption? Do I fight for the protection of my own possessions or the own, my own comfort, my family's comfort, or do I sacrifice my time, my energy, my comfort as though other people's eternities are actually at stake? I, I, don't, I don't think it's enough to say that a Christian who sits on their hands like this Redeemer, and again, I, I'm convicted by this, is simply ignorant or disobedient. It's not enough to say that. That's not enough. They are an obstacle because they are standing in the way of God's redemption of sinners. They're not an instrument of redemption. They are an impediment that God actually must remove from the equation, move out of the way in order for redemption to take place. And that's scary. That God would look down on his self-professing Christian who is silent about the gospel and silent about Jesus and not see them as a, a conscientious objector, a neutral person, but see them as an obstacle to his mission. And just to bring this into the New Testament, Revelation 2 has this scene where Jesus is communicating to the church of Ephesus. I don't know if you recall the letters at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And he, he commends them on several things that they're doing really well. And then he issues this scathing indictment of them. In verse 2, listen to what he says here. He says, I have this against you, Ephesian church, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus is saying, because you refuse to love, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. I will remove your church. I will take away your church. You are an obstacle in the way of my love for the people around you. You are not an instrument of redemption. You are an obstacle. You are an impediment to the love of God. And so the hard question for me, and I think really for everyone who knows the gospel and who has tasted the love of God, is are we in our lives, individually and as a church, are we instruments in the hands of God or are we obstacles to his redemptive purposes for the people he's put us around? There's no middle answer if you know the gospel. There's not a, a neutral spot where you're like, I'm not really an instrument, but I'm not an obstacle either. It's, it's one or the other. 
And so we must, as a church, fight not to forget the love that we had at first, that God desires to save all people the way that he desired to save us. That's his passion. That's his mission. And we cannot be obstacles in that way. We cannot be caught up in worrying about whether our inheritance is going to be impaired when people around us literally have no hope after death. They have no hope after death. Which is really what brings us to the third aspect of this redemption, the third element of this redemption I want to look at, and that's the price. So what does Boaz secure in the end? What's the ultimate goal of the redemption that's in Ruth? In part, it's Ruth. I mean, he loves Ruth. He cares for Ruth. He's fought for Ruth and Naomi every step of the way. But is that it? Is that all that is going on here? Is there something else that, that, that is being redeemed here? Let's take another look at verse 10 of chapter 4 in Ruth. Boaz tells us why he redeemed her. Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Here's the reason. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, the name of the dead, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from among the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz did this. The, the main reason for redemption, according to this verse, is that the name of the dead may not be cut off. The name of the dead, the name of Malon, this family, may not be cut off. That's the goal here. In fact, that's actually the purpose of the entire provision of a Leverite marriage in the Hebrew law, which is what this is. Deuteronomy 25, that's what redemption is for, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. In other words, this is the prize, that Malon, who is dead, and by proxy, Ruth and Naomi, that their family name will not be cut off forever, but is rather upheld by Boaz's act of redemption. Boaz must incur a loss. He has to pay for this. He might impair his inheritance. He has to incur a loss, but he provides and secures an inheritance for Ruth and for Naomi, two women, and whatever children they may have in the future. And this is where it gets real for us because now we start to see in Boaz's redemption of Ruth and Naomi, we start to see that Boaz, again, doesn't just stand as a historical character in a story. He is foreshadowing someone else we know of very intimately, and that's Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the gospel. Jesus takes on our poverty so that we can be made rich. And that's what happens with Boaz here. That's what's echoed. But Boaz and Ruth are really an echoing back into history, a foreshadowing back into history of what Jesus was going to do for us. Jesus impairs his own right to redemption or right to, to his inheritance. He deserved always to be in the presence of his father. He impairs that in order to secure our right. But it, it even goes beyond that. If you think about the gospel, Jesus did something even greater than what Boaz did, obviously. But he did something more significant than simply impairing his inheritance. He took our penalty on his shoulders. 
and he died in our place. I want you to listen to the language that Isaiah 53 uses to describe our redemption. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 53, verse 8. Jesus, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So think about this for just a moment. Boaz redeemed Ruth to prevent their family name from being cut off, from being completely torn away from the land of the living. That's what the book of Ruth is all about. That's what the the act of redemption is all about. All Boaz had to do to accomplish that was to marry Ruth. That's all he had to do and provide her with offspring, problem solved. Ruth's family is not cut off from the land of the living. But in order for Jesus to redeem us, he had to be cut off completely. Jesus had to experience the very thing that Boaz was trying desperately to prevent for Ruth. Being cut off is the same cup that we looked at earlier, the same cup that Jesus was praying about in the garden. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then again, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, this cup of being separated from you, your will be done. I can say the word cup a million times, but it is almost, it is impossible really for us to understand what was in the cup. What the cost was for Jesus as he headed through the garden to the tree. Being cut off wasn't simply a matter of being crucified on a Roman instrument of torture. That's not, that's not, lots of people endured that. What's unimaginably traumatic about the cross is that Jesus would be severed from the joy only found in the embrace of his father, which he had experienced for all eternity. That's the cup. That's the cost of our redemption. That's what it looks like to be cut off from, uh, by the cup. He was cut off from that joy in order for me and you to be able to experience joy. And we can't afford to miss this aspect of redemption because it's extraordinary. I think we tend to make light of our sins, like the ways in which we fail every day. It's easy to do that. It's easy to gloss over them. It's easy to, to, uh, to sort of just forget that they're really a big deal. But our sins have such a magnitude that it resulted in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being completely torn away from his Father. That's the cost. It is infinitely costly, which should give us, in one way, an understanding of how morally horrible sin really is, yet in another way, how gracious and loving God is, that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, was willing to come forward in the person of his son and drink this cut to be utterly cut off. I was driving, uh, actually Tuesday, when no one could drive. I was walking down 132nd, and uh, this is after the third snow, and um, 
walking down the street here because there was no power in my home, so I'm not going to do work when there's no power. I'll get caught up later. Uh, and bringing the kids to Kamaikin to go sledding and um, just walking down the street and seeing tree after tree after tree after tree all over the place. And they're still out there now. And um, it hit me driving in today what it means to be cut off. Um, and to think about it in relationship to the cross, that, that what really happened there was a lot of like what happened out here. Snow pours onto the tree limbs. The tree limbs are connected to their only source of life and joy. And it is so heavy, such a heavy weight when it freezes over that it rips the limb right off and throws it on the ground. And to think about Jesus on the cross as every ounce of unbelief and sin that we've committed is poured onto him until the weight is not strong, the weight is too great in order for him to stay with the Father. And he's ripped away from the only source of life and joy that exists in the universe. He is cut off. The redemption that Naomi and Ruth experience in this story is Boaz redeeming them to prevent the end of their family, which is huge. It's a beautiful, glorious thing. But the redemption for you and I, for those who have faith in Jesus Christ, is that in Jesus being cut off like those limbs, he secures for us the very thing that he lost in that moment, the embrace of his father. That's the prize. And as inconceivable as the pain and suffering was for him to be cut off from the father, it is equally conceivable, inconceivable the magnitude of joy that we will have in his presence. And that joy really will only be amplified by our, our awareness of our stark unworthiness and of his surpassing goodness and graciousness. So in a few moments, we're going to be taking communion as we sing. And um, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if you've trusted in his work of redemption on your behalf so that you would not be cut off, then I would ask that you take these elements, you receive these elements, the bread and, and the juice, the cup, and worship him because Jesus took our cup, the cup that was due us, and he gave us this bread to dip into his cup because he refused to leave the cross until every single obstacle that was in his way was resolved and removed so that you and I would experience joy in his presence. And John, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21.4, gives us a, a, a brief glimpse of how profound this joy is. He says in Revelation 21.4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Can you even imagine what that day will be like? That's a day. That's coming for us.
dwelling with God. Not in the way that we think we do it now, not in the way that we do it in communion in, over the scriptures or in the, with the Holy Spirit, in a way where chapter 22, one chapter away from this, verse 4, says we will see him face to face. We will feel the fingers of God on our cheeks, wiping away every single tear. That's the price that was purchased on the cross. Because what Naomi said of Boaz is even more true of Jesus. The man will not rest until he settles the matter today. Now think about Jesus on the cross. This is what he did for you individually. Think about this on an individual, personal level. He settled the matter on that day 2,000 years ago. He settled it. He refused to rest until he had fully paid for you to be with him forever. He refused to come down off the cross until he could say, it is finished. He refused And so we need to ask, like, what kind of Savior do we have? What kind of Savior are we dealing with in Christianity who sees us in our sin, in our rebellion, and never gives up? He goes all the way to the end, refusing to rest and pursuing us until it could be said of us, they will be his forever, forever. He will dwell with us forever. That is stunning. And so let's pray and and get our hearts in a place where we can ask God to open our eyes to see this as it really is so that we don't ever forget our first love. We don't ever forget what God did for us. Heavenly Father, you are great. And you are worthy of our affection and adoration even before the cross needed to happen. But what's most staggering for us, Father God, is that despite all of the ways in which we failed you, all of the ways in which we are broken and irreparable in many ways, in our own eyes, all of the ways in which we've betrayed you, and dishonored you, and may not have ever communicated the grace of God to other people who need it, all of those ways, Father, you took them on your son by giving him a cup to drink so that we wouldn't have to drink it. By rending him from your side so that we could be brought next close to you, so that we could feel your embrace. I pray, Lord, that you would remove every barrier in our hearts. There are so many barriers in our hearts to see this for what it is. Remove those barriers. Remove every every impediment from our sight to see this glorious truth. That though Christ Jesus was rich, he took on poverty to make us rich. And now we get to experience the boundless, eternal joy of being reunited with our maker. As a human race, as individuals, Father, we get to experience the joy of being brought near to the living God and feeling his love forever.
may it not be lost on us, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.